You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. Perhaps we need some outside universal threat. The scientist, the writer, the artist is challenged. If we were facing an alien threat from outside this world, the challenge must be taken up. And yet, I ask you, is not an alien force already among us? I got nothing going on. You got nothing going on. I need something to do. We need something to do. You should know by now that men in the Bugatti, he's a member of the Illuminati. Thanks for downloading another episode of the Sectarian Review Podcast, where we love our institutions so much we have to burn them down. You can talk back at us at our Facebook page, Twitter, or our website, sectarianreviewpodcast.com. And whether you love to hate us or hate to love us, please go to iTunes and review the show. That helps other people find us. Now sit back and enjoy. Hello, everybody. This is Danny Anderson once again for the Sectarian Review podcast. Uh, thanks for joining us once again and downloading this episode. Today, we're actually getting into an area of something I'm probably qualified to talk about, unlike normal. Uh, I grew up doing almost reading almost nothing but Spider-Man comic books <laughs> when, I, when I was a kid. And uh, I recently took my own uh, child to go see uh, the new Spider-Man movie, Spider-Man Homecoming, his return to the Marvel Cinematic Universe. And I found it to be a very interesting movie. And so I immediately went on our little private uh, Facebook page that we have for the show and asked, does anybody want to record something? And the great Nathan Gilmore came to the rescue. Uh, Nathan, how's it going, man? Unfortunately, the great Nathan Gilmore is sick today. You've got the mediocre one. But uh, all the same, I also grew up uh, reading Spider-Man comic books. So I'm excited to talk some Spidey. <laughs> I'm sure that nobody who listens to this show is unaware of the Christian Humanist podcast, uh, but just in case someone is, uh, Nathan hosts that show. He's the flagship uh, uh, podcast of this network. Uh, how's now, that? now, here's a trivia question, Danny. Do you know why we call it the flagship? Uh, no. Here's why. And it's an entirely <laughs> dumb reason, okay. uh, because all three of us were grad students in the University of Georgia PhD program in English. And University of Georgia never tires of referring to itself as the flagship university of Georgia. <laughs> it's parody then. I had no idea. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't think it's intentional parody. I just think that we were kind of reaching for a word that describes how we related to the Christian feminist and book of nature and sectarian <laughs> review. And that was just kind of etched in our subconscious. So, Oh my gosh, UGA has colonized your imagination. Uh, oh, in so many ways, Danny, in so many ways. Oh my gosh. That's great. Uh, I never knew that. I just always assumed it was uh, just sort of the, the proper technical term to use, but <laughs> I, I don't know if we've ever talked about that on air and it might be that Michael Farmer will be writing in saying, that's not why we call it that, but you know, 
Yeah. Until Farmer actually um, responds to something that we say, I, I refuse to think he actually actually listens to the show. So um, <laughs> prove me wrong, Farmer. Uh, I'm just kidding. Um, all right. So uh, today we're talking about Spider-Man Homecoming. Uh, there's a, a lot of subjects to talk about. And Nathan and I just sort of free associated a couple of several bullet points uh, mm-hmm. of things to talk about. Um uh, Nathan, since you were kind of enthusiastic about joining this, I kind of felt it was only proper to give you uh, the first salvo of like what was interesting about this movie and why it was you were so interested in talking about it. Certainly. I mean, one fascinating thing that you notice right off the bat is that it leaves the origin story side of things to Captain America Civil War. And there's not much origin story there. And what origin story there is is a derivative of the ultimate Spider-Man storyline from the 21st century. So we're not going back to the 1960s, Stan Lee, radioactive spider, so on and so forth, at least not in direct on-screen backstory. Uh, Instead, what we get is Spider-Man as a young recruit of a veteran and morally compromised superhero organization in the ultimate Spider-Man cartoons. It's S.H.I.E.L.D., of course, in the MCU We've done away with S.H.I.E.L.D. in Captain America, the Winter Soldier. So, uh, you know, Tony Stark and the Avengers stand in for that entity. So his origin story uh, is very muted, but instead you have a recruitment story or an initiation story. And so Tony Stark becomes a sort of mentor to young Peter Parker. And in this mentorship, uh, first of all, you get the sense that Tony Stark has no idea what he's doing because he is as he demonstrated in, you know, Iron Man three entirely unsuitable to be around children. Uh, but, uh, beyond that, because he is such an egomaniac, you can tell through these two movies that he's never really given any thought to what it might mean to be someone's mentor. And that dynamic leaves young Peter Parker. Uh, first of all, you know, at the, at the tender mercies of rowdy, is that happy, happy. That's what it is. Uh, which, you know, if, if there's anyone less suitable than Tony Stark, it's happy. Uh, but then also, he really looks up to Stark and tries to hide his misdeeds from Stark, but never really gets very much direct guidance from Stark. So, you know, as, as listeners to the Christian Humanist podcast know, I'm, I'm really, really big on reworking mythologies you mm-hmm. know i love uh you know the 1998 movie prince of egypt precisely for the ways it deviates from exodus uh you know i really enjoy the netflix daredevil series precisely for the ways that it deviates from the comic books i remember uh if you can make a mythology that's more interesting than the original or as interesting as the, as the original you've got me this movie does that danny what else i mean sort of in broad brush strokes before we get to vulture who's really who we're talking about here. Yeah. Uh, do you want to say about the movie more generally? Yeah. Um, I agree with all that. It is like a remix of, uh, yeah. of all of Spider-Man in kind of many forms that he's existed in. Right. Um, mm-hmm. there, there's even, so obviously we're going to be spoiling this movie. Uh, <laughs> I assume, oh yeah. Gosh, I should have said that. Danny. We should have said that, but you know, I assume anybody's well, I'll, I'll put it in the show notes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We're, uh, we were going to spoil, we're going to tell you basically the stuff that happens if you haven't seen it yeah. yet. Um, it seems, it did very well. I'm sure most people who are actually going to listen to this watched it first, but, uh, but, um, it, I read somewhere that, and now I'm totally, uh, the ultimate, you 
universe, I was totally kind of uh, with with Miles Morales. I I missed it completely. Um, I, mm-hmm. I didn't know anything. About, I mean, I didn't read any of that yet. But uh, there is a nod to Miles Morales even in this. Uh, Donald Glove, okay, Donald yeah. Glover's uh, who play who's you know you might know him as the rapper. Uh, uh, what's mm-hmm. his What's his rapper name? Uh, I don't remember. Oh, it's going to come to me. But uh, the, the actor, Donald Glover, um, uh, I'm going to forget about it. So uh, his uh, his little cameo, he drops a little Easter egg about his cousin somewhere. And he pl- and Glover's playing someone from the Miles Morales uh, universe in, in Spider-Man. And so he is, uh, this is a universe without Peter Parker, basically. Uh, and so Spider-Man sort of exists in this kind of alternative form in, in the ultimate universe. And so it even goes there, right? Uh, and, and the fact right. that Peter Parker... Oh, I'm sorry, I, I was making reference to the ultimate Spider-Man cartoon rather than the comic books i I should have specified yeah yeah um the ones the the written by brian michael uh brian michael bendis right um if you say so yeah he's the uh (laughs) the the writer who uh who actually uh invented miles morales and jessica jones childish gambino childish gambino thank you gosh i why that slipped my mind i'm not sure go ahead donald glover uh his uh stage name for rapping is uh childish gambino uh which is he's pretty awesome at actually um and so yeah we have uh a, a real remix of a lot of spider-man mythologies and it's almost like a a, a sandbox uh like what would all mm-hmm. of these things look like in the marvel cinematic universe that has been really organized around the avengers right and what's fascinating about it uh is that they have remixed so many of the side characters that you know people like me recognize from the old spider-man comic books you know flash yeah is no longer the football jock he's now the academic decathlete and dj yeah and he's also Indian, I yeah. think. Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, MJ is Latina. Yeah. You know, uh, he's, he's got, you know, someone who's vaguely Polynesian as a new sidekick. So, I mean, a lot of the familiar characters from, you know, the, the many, many Spider-Man narratives uh, are not only remixed, but, you know, they're also reassigned a new diversity. I mean, I, and I'm sure someone's written about this. I haven't been following the... Uh, salon.com chatter about <laughs> spider-man homecoming but you know the the two characters who remain you know white are aunt may and peter parker uh and the vulture i suppose but yeah uh well, but, yeah yeah but yeah you're right i think you're totally bad right. guys are allowed to be white yeah yeah <laughs> Yeah, I uh, salon.com went behind a paywall. I think you have to pay with your soul oh, to, really? to read okay. it. Now I'm I'm joking. That you have to pay with your soul to, to read. Oh uh, my gosh! Okay, <laughs> so you, you just threw the fake stick and I ran after it. Okay. <laughs> no, I, I have read Salon forever because of the very thing you're talking about. Um, yeah. Uh, <laughs> So no, um, yes, and so absolutely the diversity, uh, the diversification. The really, I mean, you, again, you're going to the ultimate universe to see some of this happening. With, I mean, mm-hmm. Peter Parker being replaced by a young um, African American and Latino boy, uh, uh, Miles Morales, and so um, yeah, this is something that they're, they're bringing into the to the Marvel universe, which really is kind of late in coming <laughs> they haven't really mm-hmm. yeah. done anything like this yet and, and so i think it's probably uh, it's looking towards the future in in, in really good ways i think so mm-hmm. um and and given the fact that they've remixed so much else it, it doesn't feel ham-fisted to me like it seems kind right, of natural right. when you're talking about queens you're not talking about the sam raimi spider-man uh it, it looked like queens in the 60s or something right uh and so it doesn't mm-hmm. look like that now and so it actually feels more uh authentic in that way so right 
And then one other thing, and I mean, I'm sure this will come up when we start talking about Vulture, but uh, there's also just this constant, I'll call it a, a negative space comeback, or okay. callback, pardon me, uh, in that, you know, sort of the iconic Spider-Man scene is Spider-Man swinging through the steel canyons of Manhattan. Yeah. And I mean, this movie, a lot of it takes place in the suburbs yeah. and a lot of the sight gags are the fact that he's got nothing to swing from. Yep. You know, when we are in the city, we're in Washington, D.C., where the only tall thing is the Washington Monument. <laughs> so, I mean, there's a lot of visual gags about the fact that Spider-Man can't be Spider-Man in these places. Yeah. Uh, and I think there's something to be said for that. One of the topics we want to talk about at some point, and maybe we can revisit this then, is mm -hmm. Spider-Man as a local rather than a global uh, superhero. Yeah. Uh, and I think that that kind of play with uh, set with you know setting uh in terms of skyscrapers versus suburban lawns i, I mm -hmm. think that it is probably related uh to that subject and so let's let's uh hold on to that for just uh until we get to that subject right on a right bit. on um, but yeah you're totally right and i remember as a kid um incidentally you know dreaming that i was spider-man and uh and thinking how would i actually do that where i live <laughs> there aren't anything <laughs> i'd have to just walk down the street and, and so yeah <laughs> and so yeah um but okay um and one other thing I wanted to add about the the sort of revision of Spider-Man is that it's kind of put uh, you sort of hinted at this already, but he mm -hmm. is put in a very kind of subservient position to now Tony Stark and yes. uh, and the Avengers. Right. Uh, mm -hmm. This is a, a spinoff franchise, if you will. And when for my entire life, Spider-Man was the central figure of the Marvel universe, uh, sure. it, the comic universe, right? Since they mm -hmm. didn't have his film rights until recently, uh, they were unable to make that happen. And so it, it's an, another way that it is a remix is that it's remixing Spider-Man's place in the in the Marvel universe. Mm -hmm. uh, and mm -hmm. I think that that's actually worth noting. Um, um, okay, so... Uh, we talked about diversity. Oh, you wanted to talk about some sort of gag uh, while we're on the subject of. Uh, oh, sure, sure, sure. Another, yeah, because because that's not directly related to the villain, because that's where we're going to go eventually. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, one of the things that I mean, I I was the only person in the theater laughing, which happens to me a lot. But <laughs> I, you know, the first time Schindler's say, List, Nathan was cracking <laughs> up at Schindler's <laughs> List. Yeah. No, I. I not that one, but uh, when I went to see Dogma in the theaters, there were jokes in there that only I was laughing at, <laughs> and I didn't know whether to feel bad or literate. So uh, <laughs> maybe both. Uh, yeah. Um, but one of the uh, early entities brought into this movie uh, is that Michael Keaton's character is a contractor, and he's hired to do a lot of the heavy cleanup work after the incident. Yeah. Uh, which of course is the grand battle between the Chitauri and the Avengers at the end of 2012's Avengers. Uh, and they are replaced by this uh, corporation that seems to be funded by Tony Stark, but we're not sure. Uh, and that was all fine until they said, yes, uh, you know, I am character name from damage control. And I, like I said, I'm like, Oh my gosh, this is great. And I, <laughs> I was just cackling in the theater and everyone was looking at me. Damage Control was a, a comic book in its own right in the late 80s. Uh, and, you know, it had a short run, but the gag of this comic book was precisely that this was a corporation set up to go in and do cleanup after the Incredible Hulk was somewhere. Oh. And it was a it, it was one of those uh, sort of side, you know, gag comics, you know, sort of a, trying to think, you know. 
like a Howard the Duck feel more than a Captain America feel. Okay. So the fact that they called back to damage control, I mean, I, I was the only person in the theater who was, you know, just flipping out over that, but I loved it. I really did. Yeah, those little the, Marvel's very good at sticking little Easter eggs in there for people. Uh, oh gosh, yeah, for yeah. forty-year-olds yeah, going yeah. back to comic books. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, which I guess is, I mean, makes it rewatchable. Like you want to go back and, and you you'll pick up little things that you missed in that way. So yeah. Oh sure, sure. Um, although it makes me feel like illiterate. Like I said, I did nothing but read comic books, and I don't really get most of these references even to the day. So, um, <laughs> uh, but yeah, okay. So uh, one other thing, actually, before we move on to the villain, is yeah. I guess this is a good segue. The origin story we do get in this is mm-hmm. for the villain. I mean, we don't we don't yeah. we don't get Peter Parker's origin story as you um as you admit as you said already. I think that um sticking with Parker though, that has some philosophical ramifications uh because all the Spider-Man stories around this with great power comes with great responsibility, right? Sure, the the sure. hard lesson learned through Uncle Ben's death. Right. right? He's cooking rice. Yeah. <laughs> and so uh, <laughs> Uncle Ben, that's an Uncle Ben joke I got. Yes, yes. An Easter egg for you rice fans out there. Um, <laughs> um, and so the the kind of moral lesson of all these movies is is why be moral, kind of. Uh, mm-hmm. And, and, and the, the narratives are Peter Parker's discovery of that question. Um, right. In this case, he's already sort of made that decision. And, and so mm-hmm. that's not really what he's doing it now. That's not really the kind of central drama of his story uh, because it's not really on the table anymore. It's already kind of come to that point uh, and we, off screen and we don't know about it or we don't know how he came about it at least. And so I think that um, I, well, how would you characterize the moral dilemma he is facing in this movie? Oh, that's interesting. I mean, the the arc of this movie really doesn't make any sense without Captain America Civil War. Uh, in that one, he is, in a very straightforward sense, sort of the young phenom that the veteran team recruits to add life to their team so that they can take on Captain America. Right. Uh, and so, I mean, he has, you know, this uh, phenomenal skill set. He's able to go toe-to-toe with Captain America. You know, he, he basically evens out the odds so that Tony Stark can even take on the Captain America Falcon um Ant-Man, who else was on that team? Axis, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, Scarlet so at the, beginning, and, yeah. at the beginning of this one, again, because Tony Stark is such a wretch, and honestly, that's why we—that's why I love him. I shouldn't speak for everyone. Mm. Uh, because he is so bad at being a superhero, uh, is that once he is no longer immediately useful, he forgets about him. He lets him drop off the radar. He doesn't answer his calls. And so what Spider-Man has to do is re-enter a very mundane reality of his magnet high school and his crush on Liz, who is now biracial for those of you who read old Spider-Man comic books uh, and to, you know, get a date to homecoming. That's actually the, the, you know, the title's reference is the fact that there is a homecoming dance scene in this thing. While he's doing this, what Spider-Man is wrestling with is the fact that, he has a sense that what he did in doing battle with Captain America and Falcon and Ant-Man is really what he should be doing in the world. But the people who gave him that opportunity have forgotten about him. Yeah. And uh, Tony Stark on a couple occasions tries to pretend that he's just been training the kid or, or, you know, 
letting him simmer so that, you know, he'll be a more disciplined or whatever superhero. That's all baloney. Yeah. Tony Stark just forgot about him. I mean, that's what Tony Stark has done all throughout the arc of the MCU. He forgets about people that he should be paying attention to. And honestly, that's what gets the Avengers into so much trouble, right? I mean, he builds Ultron precisely because he forgot that, you know, okay, we tried that with a guy named Banner <laughs> and stuff didn't turn out well, you know, yeah. you, you don't try to, you, you don't try to create the super weapon in the Marvel cinematic universe because it will turn back on you. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I guess that's uh, why Spider-Man has the potential of being good uh, because he is sort of not, and being engineered uh, as yeah, you, uh, to, to the degree that uh, some of these other projects have been. Um, and uh -huh. so, yeah, so that is, it's a different moral question that he's trying to answer. And it's sort of uh, one of ambition more like he uh -huh. wants to be the big shot. Uh, he had a little taste of, of stardom, if you will. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. and, and he has to go back to sort of the mundane uh, existence. Well, of a and, and not necessarily in the sense of celebrity either, but I mean, even in the sense of greatness in a sort of classical sense, right. You know, I mean, I, and I'm going to bring Aristotle in. Sorry, Danny. No, no, great. Uh, yeah. But, <laughs> you know, I mean, you know, Aristotle's notion of magnanimity is a recognition of your own importance in the world. And to deny that, to pretend that you are ordinary, is itself a vice in that Aristotelian system. So, you know, that really is what plagues Peter Parker. And at the end of this movie, and this is why it's good Danny announced spoilers, mm -hmm. uh, you know, Tony Stark, again, because he's just, so bad at this just without any warning tries to throw him out in front of the public and say, here's the new Avenger. And Peter Parker says, well, no, I want to go back to high school and live that life. Yeah. I'm not ready for this yet. And that recognition at the end is really the mark of his moral growth. And then Gwyneth Paltrow, who in civil war had left Tony Stark, I guess they're not living together, but she still works for him. I'm not sure what was going on there. Yeah. That was a moment I was scratching my head. I'll admit pepper. Uh, Potts. But, yeah. Pepper Potts. Yeah, yeah, just yeah, comes, pepper Potts, sorry. She, she comes out of nowhere again. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, she says he left, didn't he? So I mean, yeah, Tony Stark had no idea this was going to happen. He thought he was going to offer him a spot on the Avengers and he was going to love it. And once again, he's so bad at being a leader of superheroes that that's what happens. Yeah. I, so this, I guess as a transition to Vulture, uh, uh -huh. Tony Stark. I hate. I, I hate Tony Stark. Um, uh, I really See, I, 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 yeah, you hate him. I love him because he's so wretched. I don't hate him for that reason. We can I, work with. Him. Yeah. We can work with him. <laughs> I, I hate the ideology that he represents. Uh, oh sure. Uh, there's like a political ideology there. I mean, mm -hmm. he's like neoliberalism with arms and legs. Okay, and, and I, yeah. I really, I think that uh, that's the reason I hate him. And I suppose all of us some of his personality flaws kind of spring out of that. If the personality mm -hmm. flaws were because of alcohol or something, I would love them, I suppose, but, uh, but because of the, <laughs> or their ideological ones, I don't. And so um, yeah. I feel like that's a, a nod. I mean, that's a sort of an arc when you think about the, 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 the Marvel cinematic universe begins with Iron Man. Um, mm -hmm. And, the end of that movie is a press conference where he becomes public celebrity superhero man. Right. Right. Uh, on a whim, on a whim, on a whim, because the plan was for him to yeah. establish an alibi. But the very last line of the movie is I am Iron Man. Yeah. Yeah. So basically he is such an egomaniac that he can't remain private. Exactly. Right. Uh, and so he's doing, he's setting up the same, moral decision for Peter Parker uh, and, and Peter Parker then uh, takes another route. Uh, he doesn't uh, actually, know. he doesn't actually fall for that. Um, 
So he, uh, Peter Parker, when faced with the same decision, it goes another direction. He chooses private, uh, the private yes, life. Yes, yes. Uh, and, and so I think there's a very clear uh, narrative storytelling uh strategy there by marvel it's sort of closing the book on one chapter of the marvel cinematic universe uh and Mm -hmm. and opening it up to uh to a new one starring this new spider-man this young kid right Um, right so um i i guess uh you can't really talk about the vulture without talking about his relationship to tony stark uh do you Mm want to talk do you let's talk a little bit about uh michael keaton's vulture which first of all i think it's the, the most layered brilliant piece of stunt casting um, although he's great at it too it's not just stunt uh-huh. casting um, so Michael Keaton of course became famous as a, in the superhero world for Batman and uh, Tim yes, Burton's yes. Batman uh, in uh, I don't know five or eight years ago he was in the Oscar winning film Birdman which is a parody basically of someone who was Michael Keaton as Batman and wanting to be a, a, mm-hmm. a established mm-hmm. actor and then He's cast in Spider-Man as a literal bird man. Um, yes, yes. <laughs> and so it's it's really brilliant casting, I think. Uh, but and, and he's just utterly wonderful in the movie, too. I think he's the best. Mm-hmm. He's, I think, by far the best super villain in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Honestly, I, 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 I've liked the Marvel Cinematic super villains so far. So I haven't hated them to the degree that some people have, but I think he is by far the most compelling one. He's the most, okay. uh, the most right. interesting one. Uh, and and, yeah. and, it might, and it might be because I'm a Shakespearean, but I, I kind of dig on Loki, the 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 illegitimate son who. Yeah to usurp the kingdom yeah no i, I love yoki or loki yoki uh loki too <laughs> um uh, but i i do think that there's something that michael keaton's doing is vulture uh that is i think a level up uh based on upon the other villains that the mcu has so far introduced now uh, mm-hmm. with the with the exception of the television series i still think kingpin is the pinnacle i think oh man the, yeah the, he's the, wonderful <laughs> vincent d'onofrio's uh performance in daredevil as the kingpin is just in- incredible well um, and then cottonmouth from uh yeah. Luke Cage. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That's, uh, that's another one. I do yeah, think Di- that- Diamondback was definitely a letdown after half a season of Cottonmouth. Yeah. <laughs> the, uh, the, uh, the TV series that Marvel has come up with, I think have been a step ahead. I, maybe because they have more time to develop characters, mm-hmm. but, but whatever. Um, but back to Vulture, do you want to yes, talk, yes. do you want to talk a little bit about him as a character and why he's important to this movie? Well, sure. When we first meet him, it is right after the incident. Uh, and in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, what do they say, Dan? It was eight years ago or ten? I forget which. Um, it's well, let's cl- say eight years ago. Yeah, let's yeah, say eight I, years I think ago. it was eight. Yeah. So time has traveled faster in Marvel's universe than in ours. <laughs> so they established that pretty quickly. And Keaton is hired by the New York City uh, municipal government, I assume, uh, to do cleanup on this. So he's a contractor. He's a heavy construction and demo guy. He is, you know, sort of a good um working class manual labor kind of guy he hires a, an extensive crew to do this cleanup work uh, as you have to do when the incredible hulk has been somewhere and basically after he has already made all of these promises to all of these people uh agents of tony stark come to him and say you're off of this thing uh damage control is taking over that's the callback i mentioned earlier right played by response, was that Tyne Daly uh, played the the character, right? Uh, from okay. from Cagney and Lacey, <laughs> television fame. There you go. So in this moment, you know, his reply is, 
there are a lot of people counting on this. You can't just do this to us. And the reply is a non-reply. It's, well, it's off of your hands now. This is not your job. So what the character, and I, and I forget his, his character's secret identity name. You'll have to help me out with uh, this. Was it Adrian Toomes? That's the one? Yeah. What he ends up doing is he takes some of the scrap from the Chitauri warships, basically, and discovers that it has, you know, certain physical properties that are super batteries, for lack of a better term. Right. And with his technical know-how, he figures out that he can weaponize this stuff. And as eight years pass, we find out that he has become an arms dealer to people who want to be criminals but exist in a world with Avengers in it. Right. (laughs) And so, you know, he is in some way a parallel to Tony Stark there because what Tony Stark was trying to do with Ultron, he is trying to do with these Chitauri super weapons. Now, there are other parallels as well, and Danny's going to take it from here and tell you about a couple of them. Well, okay, so I think uh, maybe a distinction is where I want to... Um, so Tony Stark, this is one thing that I, I, I hate about Tony Stark and, and the way that he's depicted in film. Whenever he's inventing something, some new piece of amazing technology that helps him beat, he's alone in his lab with this hologram computer thing, and he just waves his arms around like a wizard, and the computer builds it for him, right? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. He is like... A, like this sort of almost pathological uh, embodiment of the great, you know, uh, like the Silicon Valley genius, right? Who does oh, it sure, all sure. himself, right? Well, let me try this out on you, Danny. Okay. The way that Apple cultists think about Steve Jobs. Yeah. That's the MCU's Tony Stark. Absolutely, right? Uh, he's It's like him in the lab and his great brain uh, thinking of something, waving his arms around and his magic computer that he built uh, uh, actually spits it out. And, and there's no, mm-hmm. there's no, uh, production line there's nobody he's working with it's it's just him right and i feel like yep. it's a fantasy about technology mm-hmm. right uh and, and the way in the role that technology plays in our in our lives um now the, the vulture actually he's working in this sort of gritty warehouse i think it was in brooklyn if i remember correctly uh that sounds right yeah uh, and um and he's got this team of, uh, of other people who have been put out by people like Tony Stark. Right. Uh, mm-hmm. And so uh, and I think that what you see them doing, they're bashing things with hammers and they're doing like physical labor, that the kind of physical labor that it actually takes to build this kind of stuff that Tony Stark right. wears. Right. right. It doesn't just mm-hmm. magically pop out of a machine that Tony Stark also <laughs> built by himself. Right. Um, right. Right. Uh, and so I feel like there's a much more connection, much more of a connection to uh, like not the real world, obviously, but to sort of working people in uh, in in the vultures version of what Tony Stark does. Right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. 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 Or, I mean, to put it this way, and I'm going to borrow from Jamie Smith here because I know we're allowed to do that on your show. Oh, I love it. Yeah. Um, it is a different vision of the making life. So, in other words, what does it mean to make machinery? Tony Stark gives you one vision vulture gives you another one yes now the fact that vulture is you know the supervillain says something about the ideology of the mcu yes uh but we're gonna get to that i'm sure 
Yeah, for sure. And and I think it's one of the reasons that he's such a compelling villain is that he's not all bad, right? I'm not sure I would make a different decision than he made. I might not be mm-hmm. selling things to criminals, I suppose, but um uh but yeah, I think uh I think there's some quasi-revolutionary uh, uh aspect to his to his character and I think that's what makes him so interesting and so compelling. Um and I feel like he is almost a way that the MCU is showing us what Tony Stark is really like. Uh, I mean, uh, mm-hmm. it's uh, it, to when you peer behind Iron Man's mask, um, if he's even in the suit, <laughs> in some cases he's not yeah. even in the suit, right? Um, what you really do see is someone more like the, the Vulture, right? And, and in many ways, the Vulture is a more virtuous uh, person than than Tony Stark is uh, in, mm-hmm. with regards to his family for, for uh, in one way. Um, and so, yeah, uh, but they're both using the same kind of technology, right? Um, mm. And whereas Tony Stark is depicted as inventing a certain thing because of his huge brain, um, and his, you know, whatever public virtue, but, uh, uh, Adrian Toomes has a team going out collecting things, uh, that have been right. distributed in battle. Right. And then he creates weapons for people like, uh, childish Gambino to use in a, uh, <laughs> in an armed robbery or something. Right. Uh, right. Where, where Iron Man might show up. Uh, and again, what's interesting here. And, and again, this is where the MCU, I mean, is doing some really smart things with these superhero stories is that if you are watching this alongside Captain America Civil War, which you kind of have to do. Yeah, for sure. You know, I mean, what Adrian Toomes is doing runs parallel to what the U.S. government is doing in Captain America Civil War, namely trying to develop weapon systems and controls so that if the superheroes decide to become tyrants, there will be some way to fight them. Yeah. I mean, you could totally see how Adrian Toomes would be a hero of the NRA, um, for example. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. That's good. Am I right? I mean, and, and yeah, he is sort of uh, a democratized version of, of the the way that superheroes accumulate power. Um, now, the Marvel mm-hmm. Universe, one thing that's different... Now, the movies are vastly better in the Marvel Universe than in the DC Universe, with the exception of Wonder Woman. I think that's... I mean, I liked Man and, of Steel. And by the way, Christian Feminist Podcast, please do a Wonder Woman episode soon. I don't know why they haven't. Uh, like, it would... It would be, it's, it's a wonderful movie. I really liked it a lot. Of course, by the time this drops, it'll probably be out there, and I'll sound like a <laughs> moron, which won't be anything new. But go ahead. But go to the Christian Feminist Podcast and check it out. Maybe they've already got it out there. There you go. Um, and so uh, maybe I'll push this one up in the queue so we can beat him to the <laughs> beat him to the punch. So, um, yeah. So uh, with the exception of Wonder Woman and I think Man of Steel is actually uh, quite interesting. The DC movies have been largely either forgettable or just awful. Batman versus Superman. Um, uh, mm-hmm. I give you. And so but one thing that I do admire about what they're trying to do is that they are fully okay with treating these stories and characters as mythology right they are not mm-hmm. demythologizing uh the universe whereas i think the marvel universe does it re- renders even the gods like thor is really just an alien right uh it, that's mm-hmm. uh, got some sort of genetic or scientific advantage on humans and and so right right uh, there's always a scientific explanation for everything in uh in the marvel universe whereas in, in wonder woman i mean there are like literal gods you know doing battle and, yeah, I, and yeah. I, I think that's one thing i kind of admire about the dc movies you think they're gonna hold that line um i don't know uh i i i don't know i i don't know how you can do something Okay, I, I, I just think, well, I mean, eventually they're going to have to reconcile Olympus and Krypton. 
Yeah. Because <laughs> those two realities just can't exist in the same plane. <laughs> it's a good point. It's a good point. Um, and like I said, the movies have been terrible uh, for the for largely. Uh, and but I do think that at least that's an ad. I think that's an admirable um, naivete to bring to this. Mm-hmm. And, and I think I, yeah. I kind of appreciate that. Whereas in the Marvel Universe, Tony Stark is this sort of like libertarian sort of neoliberal uh, embodiment of technology and progress. Right. Uh, and, mm-hmm. and I think that it, this is one reason I really don't like Tony Stark as a character. And in the original Iron Man, I mean, what does he do? It's almost like an apology for the Iraq war. Uh, yeah. he, at one point he goes over there and into some small little town, just dis- disarms a strong man basically. And then just kind of, casually says he's all yours and flies away right that's like the mm-hmm. fantasy of what iraq was going to be for us right and, right, and right. so i i think that tony stark and iron man in general in the marvel universe is, is just ideologically uh icky i don't know <laughs> is that a, yeah it's a technical well term. i mean that, that that's why the tension between him and captain america remains so interesting yeah yeah because and, captain america does have that older if you know if tony stark is the clinton neoliberal then, you know, Captain America is this sort of, you know, 1940s proto-libertarian. Yeah, um, he does. He does have this sort of um, honor code that transcends policy, uh, I think. Yeah. Uh, and I think that that's absolutely true, uh, which is I mean, one re- it's a kind of amazing that they've been able to keep him uh, as in that vein through all the stories that he's been through in that universe. I think he's Mm -hmm. an essential character. He's the essential character to the universe. Oh, sure. Sure. Um, And so, uh, but yeah, so that's, that's one uh, issue I have with Tony Stark and even think about how does he know who Spider-Man is? Um, It's the implication is he's got some sort of surveillance thing going on. Right. Oh yeah. And that's, and so it's very kind of, Orwellian when you think about the scope of his power in this universe. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so how he gets uh, like unquestionably labeled as the hero of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, I don't understand. I don't think it's unquestioning at all. I mean, the fact that you've got Captain America Civil War and it's a Captain America movie. Yeah. At the very least creates a tension there at the center of it. And this is where I was going to get to. They are now they have been building in the last few years then this Mm -hmm. critique of Tony Stark. And I feel like it really came to fruition in this movie with the character of the vulture. I think he showed exactly what was wrong with Tony Stark all this time uh, in in a lot of ways. Um, Mm -hmm. And and one other thing I the on the subject of surveillance. uh, Do you remember in uh, the Dark Knight? There was this uh, machine, right, the Christopher Nolan Batman yeah, film. The, yes, the mm-hmm. Christopher. Yeah, there was this machine or this technology that uh, Batman put together to find the Joker uh, with like spying on everybody's cell phones or something. He could yeah. like look everywhere, uh, and it very much was of the time of the NSA surveillance right uh, mm-hmm. program. Mm-hmm. That actually in. Nolan's film becomes a, a moral question. I mean, that becomes yeah. almost a central question as to whether Lucius Fox will continue to, to work with him or not. Um, mm-hmm. The same thing happens in the Avengers when they're trying to find Loki. They do the same exact thing and yeah. they just let it go. There's no there's no reflection uh, on I'm, it. I'm going to contest that, Danny, because then in Captain America Winter Soldier, you see the logical outworking of that. I think that what Nolan did in one film, the MCU did across an arc of films. Uh, that's a good. That's a good. Because point. I mean, that, that is the dramatic climax of Captain America: Civil War. Is that the Shield spy network, you know, turns against the people that it was purportedly protecting? 
and I, I still maintain that's the best of the MCU movies so far. Uh, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. But and, I, I and I and I guess that's I, I think were we talking about this in 2013, I would agree with you. Yeah. But now that they've made Captain America: Winter Soldier, they are really exploring that arc. And you're right, Tony Stark is the voice for the techno- technocratic you know national security state you know we need to regulate the superheroes we need to have an ultron system to defeat any alien menaces we need to basically steve jobs our way out of every human crisis right <laughs> and, you know and, and you're right that i mean you know captain america and this is why spider-man is going to be interesting because peter parker is leaning this direction too they want to lean on something a little bit closer to a classical virtue ethics you know, we need to have some kind of wisdom that transcends solving the immediate problem in this instant. Right. Right. Um, and even uh, and even if it means taking it out of some sort of government oversight control and which is the central yeah. uh, drama of civil war. Right. Um, mm-hmm. And so, yeah, absolutely. I think that I think you're totally right there um, as a whole. Like I said, I think the Marvel Cinematic Universe is much more is better made and it's much more cohesive. Uh, and, mm-hmm. and you're right. I think that D.C.'s. Uh, universe does in more interesting things in some ways, but uh, in other ways, uh, it it fail it falls far short. Um, let's go back to the vulture again, though. Uh, so, <laughs> what is so tell us about his motivation? What what is it that actually motivates him to do these crimes? It's overdetermined, uh, and I, I try not to use Freud words, but I just did. I realized, but on one level, uh, Adrian Toomes is simply trying to maintain this suburban life for his family, his wife and his daughter, uh, that damage control took away from him. So, I mean, on one level, he is living in a system that won't let the traditional contractor, manual laborer, make an honest living, so it makes a dishonest living. Yeah. All right? On another level, you can tell that he has an ego at least analogous to that of Tony Stark. He is obviously a technical genius because he can take this technology from another freaking dimension <laughs> and weaponize it in ways that allow him to compete with Tony Stark. I mean, the, again, spoiler alert, you know, the big climactic uh, battle at the end of Spider-Man Homecoming is a basically a train robbery, and the train he's robbing is Tony Stark's train. Yeah. Uh, he's going to steal all of his stuff. Right. And, you know, Tony Stark, because he's such an egomaniac, never sees it coming, and it takes Spider-Man to rescue it. Right. All right. On another level still, he is someone who is standing up, as Danny already said, for the normal people who don't have genetic mutations and don't have a billion-dollar bank account and don't have these things. He is using what he's got, which is to say technical expertise and a sense of righteousness in the world to take on those superpowers. So, I mean, on, at the very least, he's got those three streams of motivation going. Yeah, he does. He legitimately loves his family. Right. And, mm-hmm. and actually, incidentally, there was a recent uh, article on the, the I think, usually wonderful uh, website, Christ in Pop Culture. I'll put a link mm-hmm. to it in the show notes um, called Oikos and Idolatry and Spider-Man Homecoming. And it's by Jeffrey Ryder. And it's actually an interesting take on his motivations. And it, it, he basically draws a parallel to Christian family values culture. Uh, mm-hmm. And he uses 
the vulture as an example of how that can be poisonous when you sort of uh, idolize, and this is the term from the, the title, uh, family over community. Uh, mm-hmm. And so what he's, what he's willing to unleash upon the world so that he can have this quiet, idyllic uh, suburban life with his lovely family, right? Um, mm-hmm. uh, I, I think it's a very interesting article. Uh, it's not the... the the thing I thought of when I watched the movie, but it, it's somewhat compelling, I think. Um, and so, yeah, I think that that is a, um, that's one aspect of his life. Um, and so there's a twist though, to the unveiling of his relationship with his family. Right. Um, uh, do you want to talk about that or, or should I, uh, which scene do you have? Won't you go ahead and talk about it? Cause there's a couple that I've got in mind. I want to hear what you got in mind first. Yeah. So uh, all this time, Peter Parker has this uh, very typical high school crush on uh, one of his uh, science team. Uh, there's like a science uh, trivia team. What are they Academic called? decathlon. <laughs> that's an academic decathlon. Thing. And, and, and that's where flash is, which honestly, that was the most jarring part of this movie for me. I'm like, what flash isn't on the football team. Yeah. He's now, <laughs> He's just as much a bully, uh, and, and yeah. but it's now sort of intellectual bullying instead of physical yep. bullying, right? And, and so, which is another variation that they've they brought into this movie. Um, but anyway, but uh, oh gosh, I forget his his girlfriend's name, uh, Liz. Liz, uh, her uh, also also an import from years and decades of Spider Man comics. Yes, yeah, for sure. Um, but she is a, sort of a teammate and is. Uh, super beautiful uh, high school teenager uh, who Peter Parker has this uh, like puppy dog crush on. And at some point uh, like he saves her at the Washington monument as Spider-Man. And so in all of these stories, you have these sorts of uh, connection, the the duality of Peter Parker versus Mm Spider-Man and their relationship Mm -hmm. with the love interest. This happens all the time. Um, they they're sort of separate. There's like a triangle that's constructed constructed between uh, the right. three the three characters, and, uh, and and at one point he actually gets her to go to prom with him. Right, homecoming, uh, homecoming. homecoming. Excuse me. Uh, What's the name of the movie, Danny? <laughs> homecoming. I didn't go to prom or homecoming when I was in So it's all a bunch of bourgeois crap. I don't. Um, so um, <laughs> so uh, but so he gets her to go, and he shows up at her house, which we'd been to before at a party. Uh, she hosted mm-hmm. a party at this house before and we get to see the kind of splendor of the suburban lifestyle that she gets to that she lives uh and opposed as opposed to his apartment building life in queens and mm-hmm. uh opens the door and her father is the vulture is adrian yes. tombs who peter parker has seen already in battle uh and so right. he immediately knows and, and he doesn't wear a mask so he knows what he looks like yes yeah the vulture does not wear a mask he just wears a, a an armored suit because he's doing everything sort of privately he doesn't make public spectacles of what he's doing he's sort mm-hmm. of coming in and robbing something like a burglar and um uh but anyway but so he sees who her father is it was one of the most kind of like oh moments it really did catch me <laughs> off guard uh i really was not uh-huh. expecting that uh so uh that's that little twist i think added a lot of dramatic impact to the vultures character do you have anything to add about that well and i was thinking of the later scene where adrian tombs is driving peter and liz to homecoming right and she starts dropping clues that okay peter parker always seems to disappear when spider-man shows up which again <laughs> i mean I, I i never get tired of that trope in superhero stories i really don't uh but i mean he tells her to go on in and have a good time he wants to have a man-to-man talk with peter and in the most bone chilling scene in the movie, yeah. I mean, he leans over the back seat like the father of a teenage girl 
And instead of menacing him about, you know, what they do after prom, he says, if you ever put on that Spider-Man suit again, I now know who you are. I will murder you and your family. Yeah. <laughs> now have a good time at homecoming. All right, Pete. And it seems perfect. Like, oh. <laughs> and he seems perfectly willing to live with that detente. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and yet. Uh, and so Peter Parker then goes into homecoming and breaks it off with Liz right there, runs out the back in his uh, makeshift Spider-Man costume, which uh, I guess we left that part out. Uh, Tony Stark requisitioned, Tony Stark had provided him this technological Spider-Man suit. Okay. Basically Iron Man Jr. Yeah, basically. And it was really annoying to me, frankly, I really, that was grating on me for most of the movie that I saw. him I kind of liked it, but go ahead. (laughs) Um, Because I felt like this is the movie selling Spider-Man out to the Tony Stark uh, ideology. And when Tony Stark requisite re-requisitions that suit and give and Peter Parker's forced to wear his basically sweatpants and hoodie uh, outfit mm-hmm. that he designed himself. Uh, like I felt like the movie showed me that it was, it was really, it believed what I believe about Tony Stark, right? Uh, Spider-Man's mm-hmm. true heroism exists outside of that, um, outside of that suit, uh, outside of the technological trappings of that suit. Um, and so he goes out in, in his sort of makeshift suit that he had hidden under his locker uh, in the school, and he begins the, the, the chase for uh, to find the vulture. Um, right. And to keep so, him from robbing Tony Stark. Yeah. Ironically but, enough. Exactly. Right. <laughs> uh, with And if any point he needed that suit, right? Uh, and now he has yeah. to do this sort of in the most kind of brave way possible. Um, and so I felt like that, interchange uh with that reveal of who the vulture was in relationship to peter parker's life and so that's one of those moments where the the spider-man character and the the peter parker character they always come into collision right uh Mm -hmm. there's always a a drama between those two parts of his personality that's where it happens in this and it happens to be around a girl um and so i thought that that uh really showed the dark side of family values as uh as the article i was just uh referencing uh, mentions, but it also, I think, un- I think it shows a bit of a hollowness about uh, our way of thinking about working class heroism. Uh, okay, go ahead. Um, and so, when you think about the way that the, vo- the before we see him in that suburban house, we see him in this industrial kind of setting right uh sure. he's, he's working with a crew they're all very kind of roughneck uh figures and um and they're very kind of working class and if you have to go to central casting and ask for a working class guy they'll send you these guys right and yeah, so yeah <laughs> and so uh and so you have this sort of vision of the working class um and i feel like when you see what he's actually living you've got this critique of the suburbs i think that are, that is mm-hmm. that's brought along so the suburbs are in some ways implicated in the crimes of the vulture uh, in the kind of economic crimes of the vulture um and and mm-hmm. i think that that's where we can get back to the idea of local versus global and why peter parker wow. He doesn't work. It doesn't work in the in the suburbs, right? What he does uh, when he's on that realm of global globalized, the global economy basically gets embodied mm-hmm. in in the suburban landscape. Uh, whereas the sort of local economy is in the New York skyscrapers and tall apartment buildings that he can swing between and actually make a difference in. Uh, and, and I think that that the the vulture as someone who inhabits this more kind of uh, 
post-industrial economic landscape. Mm-hmm. I, I think that that is a, another kind of critique. That's another like parallel to Tony Stark that you see right there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, you know, picking that up and running with it. Um, the fact that he is doing battle for the sake of his crew in the first half of the movie gives him a sort of moral status that I think you're right. I mean, kind of drops off in the second half when you realize that he's doing this so that he can keep this grand suburban home in which his teenage daughter can throw parties. Uh, You know, there is a superiority that he loses there. You know, I mean, you kind of see that he's not by any means living the Tony Stark mansion in Malibu life, uh, but he's also not necessarily, you know, struggling to put put food on the table with his arms dealing he is maintaining a fairly lavish lifestyle absolutely right um and and i think that that's uh and that lifestyle is something that spider-man at this point is uh, not really able to uh intervene with it isn't until we get i mean where does he he goes to his warehouse in brooklyn uh Mm. back in the city where it's sort of uh, a common turf of uh, where spider-man actually has some leverage to use against him. Uh, and it ends and also in, someplace to swing from. Exactly. That's what I mean. Yeah. Uh, oh, and, okay. and, and you're being very literal. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and he actually, uh, also, uh, it ends in a, like a scrapyard or something where the plane crashes, uh, with Tony mm-hmm. Stark's equipment. And, and so it, and like Spider-Man's able to sort of enter into there and bring him back into this, uh, kind of, old economy setting. And, and I think that's where he gains his power. I saw somebody and I think it was the guy he was on the city of man podcast, uh, like a year ago, the uh, what was his last name? Uh, I, I know you're talking about the pastor from DC. Yeah. He was talking about race and, and religion on the city of man podcast. Um, mm-hmm. uh, and I forget his last name, the something. He was very critical of this movie on Twitter. I, I was watching when he, when it first came out. And yeah. one of the things he talked about was how Spider-Man's pathetic because he's only good in a neighborhood. He's not like, and I think, I think that's actually where he gains moral power, right? <laughs> I, 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 am, I, am I wrong? Is that what not what makes him special? Is that he is not a superhero for the world. He's not going to save the world from a meteor uh, crash. Uh, he's, he's a superhero for the day-to-day experiences of kind of regular people. Yeah, I can see that. Although, you know, the again, the climactic battle is to save a plane full of weaponized Tony Stark merchandise from robbers. So, I mean, I mean, the, the, I don't think there's a clean line there between the local and the international. Uh, go ahead. Um, he's like not particularly like well equipped though to intervene in that. Um, and, and so like, it's kind of fortunate. I mean, that he's able to actually overcome the vulture um, in that kind of a setting. <clears throat> Excuse me. And so I feel like, it's at the limits of his ability to actually make any change in the world. He's not going to be able to fly to Germany on his own to stop Loki. Right. Uh, He's not going to be able to, to to do all the things that the Avengers do. Um, But what he can do is solve problems in the city without destroying the city. Uh, right. Okay. That's Grant. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so the, the Avengers, I mean, that's, the, that's the whole point of civil war, right. Um, is that wherever the Avengers intervene, destruction follows in their path. Right. And so I feel right. like there's something more noble about Spider-Man in his limitations. 
Okay, I can I, I can grant that. I can grant that. Um, yeah, and so I, I just thought that that was an interesting transition from. I mean, I, th- I do feel like this is a in the long term of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, maybe going to be a kind of pivotal moment, this this film, because I think it's giving uh, an out for all of the kind of uh, destructive uh, in, uh, destructive metaphors and I- ideologies in the previous MCU universe films. Uh, I feel like this is a way to solve, this movie actually seeks to solve a lot of those uh, ethical problems. Right, and that's why it's going to be interesting. I mean, of course... Uh, those who were reading comic books in the late 80s, early 90s, as I was, remember the Infinity Gauntlet grand crossover that, you know, the MCU seems to be heading towards. Yeah. Uh, that did not happen in the wake of Civil War in the late 80s. No. So I'm, I'm going to be fascinated to see. And I'll, I'll go ahead and grant, Danny, I'm already prepared to be disappointed. <laughs> uh, what, what I fear is that, you know, Thanos is going to show up with the Infinity Gauntlet. And Cap and Iron Man are just going to say, okay, we're going to be cool again. Yeah. (laughs) And there's not going to be any kind of continuing tension between these visions of what it means to be a hero in the world that we inhabit. Here's the thing. MCU has set up, like I said, by juxtaposing the Infinity Gauntlet and the Civil War storylines. Yeah. And the Ultimate storyline, for that matter. I mean, they are pulling from these three streams, at the very least, of comic book narrative and they're heading into something that is not purely infinity gauntlet not purely civil war not purely ultimate but something that stands to be just fascinating yeah so i mean my my hope is for these movies that they really take advantage of that yeah i agree i do think that there's some interesting work to be done in pop culture studies i suppose or if not english um Uh about using adaptation theory to sort of read uh the way that the mcu has kind of changed uh inherited narratives and and storylines and and merged and and melded things uh to create something entirely new i think that there's actually some interesting work there uh Mm -hmm. to be done and i i love these movies unapologetically uh i know that uh, you know, <laughs> I'm probably too old to be liking comic book movies as, as much as I do. Uh, but I do think that they're wonderful. Uh, and, 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 and frankly, I think I find them more interesting than most things that, that get released as major Hollywood movies. Uh, I think that, that they at least open up the possibility for philosophical questions um, uh, in unexpected ways if you're willing to look for them. Um, well, good. Nathan, thank you again. This was great. Uh, your insight, I, I, you know, Nathan was on a show we did last year about Daredevil and Jessica Jones. Uh, he's somebody I know I can go to and have really smart things to say about uh, comic book movies and uh, comic book stories. And so and I love comic books. Yes, I really do. <laughs> <laughs> I just brought a whole stack of them into my office to, that I wanted to read, uh, uh, and uh, I'm looking forward to catching up on those here after this. I expected to read them this summer, but uh, the summer turned out to not allow that. So, uh, but yeah, Nathan, that was great. Uh, if anybody who is out there has watched this movie and wants to push back on anything that we have said so far about the, the film, by all means, go to either the website, sectarianreviewpodcast.com, or probably even better is our Facebook page. Find where we uh, like the Facebook page. Find where we have uh, posted the link to the show and comment right there. I love to read those con- and, and take part in those conversations that happen after the show. That's kind of... Um, what gets me going uh, about doing the podcast is the the extended conversation uh, about really cool things. And I think that Spider-Man Homecoming was a surprisingly excellent Spider-Man movie. I, before we go, Nathan, what is your how would you rank it in the 
cinematic versions of Spider-Man that we've seen so far. Oh goodness. Far. Well, the middle Spider-Man and I can't even remember the the title or the actor who played Spider-Man. I never saw any of those. The Amazing Spider-Man with Andrew Garfield. Yeah, that's the one. So I really can't rank that one. Um, you know, I I like the Tobey Maguire version of Spider-Man for a lot of reasons that I won't get into here. Uh, but I really liked the remix character of this one. I mean, this one, um, first of all, you know, is aware that we are going into a storyline where Captain America was encased in ice for 60 years and, you know, then came out of hibernation. It's a story that's aware that, you know, half of the superheroes in the world have turned on the other half. Yeah. Uh, and so, for that reason, and probably because I've seen it more recently, I mean, I really dig what this movie's doing. So I, I wouldn't want to rank him so much as I'd say that, you know, the Tobey Maguire is sort of a more straightforward origin story, big fight, break up with the girl, get back with the girl superhero movie. Yeah. And this one is more of a postmodern remix of the superhero movie. So I kind of dig both of them. Yeah. So how do you like that cop out? No, that's pretty good. Um, <laughs> I, I just, I'll step in for the Andrew Garfield version. I did just recently actually see the second one of those movies and it uh -huh. suffers from the typical, I don't know why they still make this mistake. They stuff too much into one movie uh, yep. in terms of uh, <laughs> villains and that sort of thing. But, repeatedly i mean i don't know why hollywood can't learn that lesson uh but that one was felt a little overstuffed um i actually thought the first one was quite good uh and, and uh -huh. i actually thought that in many ways it though it was less kind of literal i think that the sam raimi with toby Maguire was very a literal rendition of the old comic books oh yeah the yeah steve, the steve ditko yeah. stan lee comic the, the first you know mm -hmm. whatever era of spider-man and in that way, it felt a little phony uh, and not okay. it, it didn't feel like upon watching those movies again, it doesn't feel like that could actually be our world. Uh, it feels manufactured. Okay. Um, I can see that. I can I, see that. And I felt like the the amazing Spider-Man, the, the Mark Webb uh, directed uh, film, actually, I think, though it was less literal, I think captured the spirit in a more contemporary way. And there are a lot okay. of ways I like that movie better than the Sam Raimi movie. Uh, not in every way. Um, but I, I think that it, it's, it's a really, really good movie. Um, and I think that this one, um, is even more so. I feel like this is the best of all the Spider-Man movies that I've okay. seen. Um, and I think that a lot of it goes back to Tom Holland as Spider-Man. He is such a, uh, a perfect, uh, piece of casting for that role. <laughs> he's got mm -hmm. this youthful, naive energy. Uh, he's got this uh, kind of uh, uh, sense of morality that's sort of built into what he's doing. He literally seems to care about other people. Uh, and uh, and I, I think that he's just tremendous as Peter Parker, uh, even though it's this sort of postmodern amalgam of Peter Parker's, right? Uh, uh, and, sure, and sure. Uh, but I think that it is actually so much more... Uh, it captures the essence of what we all loved about Peter Parker growing up. And, and I also love the fact that, you know, 20 years after, oh heavens, 30 years after <laughs> Jack Nicholson just utterly stole the show from Michael Keaton. Yeah. Michael Keaton is now just so bone chillingly good as the vulture. Yeah. That he in some, in some ways stole this show from 
Tom Holland. I, I when they're together for sure. Those scenes, that scene in the car, particularly, you could see Tom Holland shrink uh, as yeah, yeah. As, uh, as Michael Keaton expands. Uh, absolutely, he is just out, absolutely uh, like born to play that role. And it's nice to see that they don't kill him off. Uh, another spoiler, mm-hmm. uh, and so that we can actually uh, make use of that character because he was, I think, by far the best. Uh, the best villain in the Marvel cinematic universe that we've seen so far mm-hmm. uh, in terms of being interesting. I mean, they're entertaining villains, right? Like you said, Loki oh, sure. is entertaining. Uh, but I do think that, that, uh, that Tom, uh, excuse me, Michael Keaton's vulture is, uh, is actually interesting uh, in, in so many ways. We talked about from the level of stunt casting all the way through his name. I mean, what is he doing is he's, scavenging off of uh, yeah, yeah. uh battlefield tombs yeah yeah exactly <laughs> exactly and so yeah it's a it's a it's a tremendous uh uh performance on, on both ends of that and so i would actually put this right at the top of all the spider-man movies um, um well, good good I, yeah so um i if you haven't seen it uh i'm you probably won't enjoy it as much now because we spoiled it all for you. Uh, but uh, <laughs> let us know what you thought. Uh, and thank you again, Nathan Gilmore. Uh, what's you guys? When do you guys start recording again for the Christian Humanist? Oh, uh, probably sometime late August, early September. We haven't set a date yet. Okay, so yeah, Nathan, uh, Michael, and David Grubbs will be back uh, better right. than ever. I, I, uh, I can almost guarantee there's going to be some Martin Luther talk since it's the. 500th anniversary of the 95 theses beyond that who's to say what's to come this season there we go uh yeah they make it up as they go along i can tell you uh from experience Mm -hmm. so uh, (laughs) (laughs) so anyway uh nathan gilmore thank you again uh hope everything's great at emmanuel college and uh, enjoy your day very good you too